Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. Almighty and everlasting God, uh, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now, that you would be present with us and, and again shape us as we study your word. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, make us disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, that you would use this to shape our mind, uh, to shape our hearts, to, to shape our eyes, to see things differently, and uh, get, use this to um, give us pay, peace where we need your peace, but also give us courage uh, where we need your courage. Pray that you would uh, be present with us and bless us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, the purpose of Revelation we'll get to, that's, that's one of the things I want you to continue to think about and um, to, to think about it because for the last class that we have together when we get together in December towards the end, um, that may be something that you, you may want to write in your, your kind of class about just, I don't know, what you've learned, where we've come, and that sort of thing. So, um, craziest thing you read? Yeah, you got one. The the hundred pound hailstones, yes. So here's another thing that shows that this is uh, the vision is showing things symbolically. Um, what do you suppose would happen if you got hit by a two pound hailstone? You would die, right? I mean, Im- imagine just a hailstone this big if it thunked you on the head. I mean, at, at what size does a hailstone have to be to knock you out? Not super, like golf ball size from the sky may do it. 100 pound hailstone, nobody's going to be complaining to God after that. (laughs) Unless it's face to face, I suppose, right? And so this is a a symbolic thing. But anyway, uh, yeah, 100 pound hailstones. What else is weird? The frog, yeah. Burping up frogs that were demonic spirits, yeah. What else? There were no locusts in this one, so yeah. No weird locusts, yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, that they wouldn't repent. Yeah, they, they wouldn't repent. Good. What else? All right, well, I guess your mind has been so shaped by revelation, really weird things now seem normal, so... So again, I want to kind of uh, put this challenge out there of what if Revelation is not primarily about future predictions? It does have future predictions in it, but what if it's instead about how we are to live faithfully today and speaking to that? And then also kind of asking us to to see reality differently. Um, Today, uh, I want to start with, I I hope, did you all get a chance to read? I don't know, I, I hope you got a chance to read the writing that was in your packet on wrath and chaos in the book of Revelation. And I know that got into, um, it may have gotten into some stuff that was a, a little bit heavy, but um, I think it's an important way to start to see how God's wrath and how chaos works in Revelation. And to do, to, I, I want to kind of start with that and with the book of Exodus as the background, um, because I think that as we start with Exodus and the wrath and chaos in the background, it helps us to kind of see uh, these two chapters especially um, 
a little bit differently and to kind of see what's going on and what it tells us about God and about rebellion and about uh, us. And so we've already noted that there's a connection um, between Exodus and Revelation. Well, in chapters 15 and 16, you've got a sea mixed with fire and those who have conquered stand by it. So it's like after the Israelites pass through the sea, you've got the Song of Moses, which is also found in Exodus 15. There's a tent of witnesses, which is similar to the tabernacle of God's presence in Exodus 40. You've got the plagues, um, which are found in Exodus. Uh, and we'll go through those more specifically in, in a little bit. But you've got the plagues that are similar to the plagues um, that Moses did. So we've got these parallels uh, in, in the Lamb, the Lamb of God, and uh, the, the Passover Lamb in, in Exodus. So I, I want to begin by... Uh, recognizing that in the book of Exodus, as, as well in, as in Revelation, God is the faithful creator. So in Revelation chapter 4, the praises are, all praises are given to God because God created everything. Uh, we just read, was it last week, from Revelation fourteen seven, it says, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. God is praised in the book of Revelation for being the creator God. That's, that's the, the big part of it, is God is the creator God. The Lamb is God the Savior, God that's uh, to rescue his people. And so God as creator God is, uh, is a, that's a big part in the background of, going, of what's going on here. Along with that, as you have... Um, the enemies of God are called the destroyers of the earth. Um, in uh, chapter 11, verse 18, it says it's time to destroy the destroyers of the earth. And, and also in uh, chapter 9, verse 11, you see uh, with the destroyer that comes. And, and so you have a creator and then you have the forces that oppose God are those of destruction. God is a faithful creator in the Old Testament as well. So in, in Genesis 1 and 2, you get God creating. And God creates uh, out of nothingness. God creates out of, there's, it's this sense of from chaos and darkness. Uh, in the beginning when God created, the earth was a formless void and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And you get this, uh, this, this picture of this kind of unformed chaos and, and that sort of thing. And God takes from that chaos and brings in creation. And as God starts creating, and, and it's uh, broken into these uh, day segments, and, and it's at the end of each day when God looks upon what he created, he says, it is good. And so God is a faithful creator that made a good creation. And so as we've gone through this story before, it's important to note then, if creation was good, why are we here? Well, what happened in Genesis 3? We sinned. And so the, the fall of creation is a result of sin. God made us in the image of God, which means we have a special place within creation. And so when we sinned, it affected creation. Because again, we would like to think that sin only affects us and it's kind of our own deal. But the reality is that sin impacts um, our relationships and the world around us. So in Genesis 3, we find that the fall... Uh, impacted the world around us. But God created and created out of chaos and darkness and created um, and, and, is, and is now moving things towards new creation. 
We see this in the book of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66. We also see it at the end of the book of Revelation, God moving things towards new creation. We see it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us this amazing picture of new creation. Because um, what happened to Jesus' body? He was raised again. But was it the same sort of body? No, it was different. Now, did it use the same material? Did they find a body in the tomb? No. Used the same material, but somehow it became something different, right? Was it still a physical body? Yes. How do we know? He ate fish. He said, Thomas, you can touch my hands, my scar on my side. So you've got this weird, like it's the, still the physical body. They used the physical body of, of, of Christ, but then it was a different body because he could like walk through walls, and they seemed to have a hard time recognizing him. So there's something different going on. And so um, this is new creation, and God is moving things towards new creation. Well, that's been the plan. After the fall, God's, God's making things new. He's making this new creation. Why? Because God is a good creator God. And so who's on the side of sin? Well, that's the destroyers. And so if you look at this um, part up here that I actually used for a, a different sermon a few years ago, you see the move from chaos and darkness into creation. But then with the fall, there's something that's going on. With the fall, if you're rebelling against the good creator, you're going towards chaos and darkness. Okay? God is the good creator. If you work against the purposes of the good creator, what do you do? You destroy. What are the enemies of God called in Revelation? Those who destroy the earth. And so you've got this one move this way towards new creation. And then you've got this move the other way towards chaos and darkness, towards disintegration. Okay? And that's part of what I was going through in that, the reading that you have from uh, chaos and judgment in Revelation, is that um, you, you've got this, we have the creator God drawing things to his purposes, which is good creation. Anything that works against that is the destruction or disintegration of the good creation. That's just by definition, right? If God's going this way and you're going against God, you're going that way, which means destruction, disintegration. Now, this is important because if this is, um, if this is the situation in Exodus, God's plan to restore and save humanity... Um, really started with a person and a family. What family was that? Abraham and his family. And God said, you will be blessed so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Why? Because it wasn't about picking one person. It was about the restoration of good creation. And so this is God's rescue plan. The Jewish people. God's rescue plan. What does Egypt do? They enslave them, right? They make them slaves. So are they working with God or against God? Against God. God is moving towards new creation. Egypt enslaves his people that's at the center of that. So they're working towards this disintegration, chaos, and darkness. I lay this out for you because then I think it makes the plagues, um, it kind of shows what they are. With the plagues... God says, if you want to move towards chaos and darkness, here's what it look like, looks like. 
The water doesn't work right. Bugs go crazy. You get sores. Like this creation is literally broken in the plagues, right? You get a little piece of broken creation. Which also, interestingly enough, corresponded with different Egyptian gods. And so think of it this way. God is the good creator who holds all things together. Egypt enslaved God's people and worked against God's purposes. And then they also said, we've got gods who take care of this thing. We've got gods who take care of the water. And God says, oh, really? Okay. Let's see how that works out for you. And then God stops taking care of the water and what happens to the water? It turns to blood. Well, we've got gods that take care of the crops. Oh, really? Okay, let me kind of let you see how that looks, how that works out when you follow your God on that. And then all of a sudden, all these locusts come. We've got, God that keeps, uh, we've got gods that keep things in the right order and stuff, like frogs, and all of a sudden, God, well, let's see how that works out for you. And all of a sudden, there's frogs all over the place. Right? And so you get this, this brokenness of, of creation and this, uh, these uh, anti-creational forces. So um, one of the quotes from a wonderful commentary on the book of Exodus uh, says, Pharaoh's oppressive anti-life measures against Israel which Pharaoh is anti-life. How do we know this? What's, the fir- what's one of the first things Pharaoh does? Um, starts killing the children. Yeah. Right? And what's <laughs> the, the creational imperative uh, to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply. And so what's Pharaoh doing? During, yeah, he's, he's working directly against God and against creational purposes. So Pharaoh's oppressive anti-life measures against Israel are anti-creational, striking at the point where God was beginning to fulfill the creational promise of faithfulness in, in Israel. Egypt is an embodiment of the forces of chaos. So the, Egypt, the Egyptian, it was kind of like they were the beasts before Revelation. The embodiment of the forces of chaos, threatening a return of the entire cosmos to its pre-creation state. Um, the plagues may thus be viewed as the effect of Pharaoh's anti-creational sins upon the cosmic order writ large. This is what it means to be anti-creational. And then things fall apart. Things fall apart. And so um, the plagues are, are signs or samples of what the fruit of that rebellion really is. This is the fruit of your rebellion. Creation gets broken. If you rebel against the God of order and creation and you turn to the other gods, this is the result. A a devolution back into chaos. From devolution. And it really is. Devolving back into chaos. God is the one who holds all things together. Okay? So does that make sense? You've got God going towards new creation. The forces that work against God, which include Pharaoh are anti-creational. And so that layout is the same thing that's, that's going to hit us in Revelation. Along with that, we have the wrath of God. And so what is the wrath of God, and how does that work? And there tends to be, um, oh, Dr. Mahon wrote, there tends to be two stances that people take today about the wrath of God. The first stance is they'll say, well, it's, it's punitive, vindictive, and retributive, retributive, Retribution. It's like porky pig. Okay. And, and so, um, and we do that because, like, we take what we know about persons, and then if it's God, it's like blown up a million times. 
So if you hear the wrath of Andy, then you think, well, it's Andy's coming at you with vindication and punishment and because he's mad and he's just going to go hammer somebody. Say, well, if that's the case then for Andy, then if you blow that up a million times, that must be what God does is he's just out to get somebody. Um, But oddly enough, believe it or not, there's a significant difference between Andy and God. And so when we speak about the wrath of one, it can't be a blown up version of the wrath of a human. Um, And so this picture of wrath being kind of just punishment and vindictiveness pictures God as this authoritarian and uh, even vindictive kind of nasty God. And you become like that which you worship. So people who believe really strongly in this God who's just out to punish every little thing, what happens to their hearts? And they become judgmental, which occasionally happens to Christians, doesn't it? Never, right? Those other, the other churches, not here, though. Right? So that's one of the things, if, if we believe of wrath in that way. The, the opposite is another stance that people tend to take, is that, well, this idea of wrath is just outdated. It's a vestige of a less enlightened age. Um, and so they picture, that picture has God as, as simply overlooking sin, there's really no such thing as justice because God just ultimately isn't concerned with real brokenness in people. And what that means is if there's no kind of wrath and reaction to sin in that way, if it's, yeah, everything's just kind of okay, wrath is an old-fashioned thing, then what happens to justice? I mean, what happens to the... What's the response to the situation where a guy kidnaps a girl and puts her in sex slavery? Like, there ought to be something. Like, that's not okay. And so what happens to that? And, and so this idea of wrath just being outdated kind of ignores the whole justice problem of, of something that needs to happen. And the people who, who follow that tend to be marked by what we call tolerance, although I don't know if it's really tolerance, but it's something, it, it's something that's called that, which kind of means that um, you can't have any ultimate, or you can't think that you're ultimately right unless you believe that, the only thing is that nobody can be ultimately right is the only thing that's ultimately right. Anyway, um, right, and, that's, and, and so there's that. How, and, and there's, uh, of course, different responses to that, but part of it is how, how could a good God ignore um, actual sin and brokenness? And to be honest with you, you know, I've got sin in me that I hope God deals with because our hope is... is our hope isn't simply that God will, hey, let's just pretend that never happened, but our hope is that God will send the Holy Spirit into our hearts and our lives to transform us. Because it turns out that sin, that moving towards chaos, is not good for anybody. So those are two negative views, or two views of wrath that aren't particularly helpful. But what if the wrath of God is something different? What if it's a way to describe something about our relationship with our Creator God? Like, what if... Strange thought. What if God really did create everything? Like, what if, if the Bible's accurate there? If, the, if God really did create everything, and we really were made in the image of God to be in relationship with God, like, what if that's accurate? And if there really is a God who created us to be in relationship with Him, then what do we ultimately need in our lives more than anything? To be in relationship with Him. And what happens when we do anything else but that? It messes us up. It's just not going to be right. 
So what if there really is just one of the, the spiritual laws of the universe is you were created for relationship with God? And Dr. Mulholland writes that, that God's nature establishes the ultimate value of human existence. It's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Like the ultimate meaning of my existence is only found in God. Like what if that's a real thing? That the only way I find my existence and meaning in that is in God. And then the nature of God is the context of our wholeness or our brokenness. So if us by our nature are meant to be in this relationship in life sustained by God, when we cut off that relationship, what does that look like? Well, sin is cutting off that relationship. And so then we're broken. And how does that brokenness play out? Well, it's all around us. And it also broke creation. And so, if you look at Romans 1, in Romans 1, <clears throat> Paul is writing, oh, I'll go ahead and turn there. Romans 1 has this fascinating thing about how the wrath of God plays out. And we keep in mind this need for us to be in relationship with God. In, in Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. What can be known about God's plain to them because God has shown it to them? Ever since the creation of the world, through his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, they've been understood and seen throughout the things he made, so they're without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. And then the, the wrath of God is played out this way. In verse 24, it says, Therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, it said, For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Verse 28, it says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased bind to things that should not be done. The wrath of God plays out this way. He lets you have your way. And that's what is very clearly stated in Romans 1. And so the wrath of God plays out just like with e Egypt and the Pharaoh is if you want to see how things go without me being God, here's a plague. Has this ever happened in your own life? Have you ever turned from God and you've been following a sin and it turns out that sin was destructive? The wrath of God plays out this way. God gave them up to follow these things. So this is, a, this is maybe a different way uh, of thinking about this sort of stuff. But as I've said before, and I think it's worth you thinking about, I don't believe God has to send anyone to hell. I believe we're all running there pretty quickly on our own. Like if you believe you can be God of your own life, what if God just says, okay, I'll let you do that? You've got nothing. 
And if we really were made to be in relationship with God, and we cut that relationship off, then our, our existence is one of misery and brokenness. Because the very thing that's supposed to define us, we've now kicked out. What happens if God ever looks at you in your sin and says, fine, you can have your way. The scripture defines that as, um, as like hellfire and burning and, and gnawing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is, this is God's wrath and judgment plays out this way by, by turning people over to that sort of thing. Um, and so I want this uh, background to kind of shape what we're going to see here in Revelation 15 and 16. Um, the, the wrath of God, this bottom quote here um, by Dr. Green and I think it's Mark Baker, they, they wrote a fascinating little book called the Scandal, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. And they're talking about wrath and that, and they wrote the, the wrath... The wrath to come refers to the climatic end time scene of judgment where those who prefer to worship idols rather than the living God receive the fruits of their own misplaced hopes and commitments. Those who prefer to worship idols as opposed to the living God receive the fruits of their own misplaced commitments. This is like last week, you remember there was the judgment of the wine press of the fury of, of, or the wrath of God. Well, the grapes were the people and the actions of rebellion against God. And so they were made to drink of the wrath of God, drink of the cup of the wrath of God. But what filled that cup? Their own stuff. This is all very consistent throughout Scripture then. It's just like Romans saying, and God turned them over. God gave them up. So the wrath of God is, is letting us experience the full magnitude of the consequences of our own sin. Which means, if you are not currently experiencing the full magnitude of your own sin, who is helping you right now? Yeah. God, in his grace and mercy. Because honestly, like, is there any of us who throughout the week at some point God couldn't just say, you know what, you're trying to be God of your own life? There you go. And what would that be? Is there anyone here who can create or sustain life on your own? In that moment, we're done. And we're undone. But it's by the grace and mercy of God that we carry on. Why? Because God is a good, faithful creator. The character of God is of utmost importance. God is a good, faithful creator, so he doesn't give up on you. So this is a different way to think about God's judgment and wrath. But I want, you to think about God's, I want you to think about judgment as God pronouncing what is. Not some arbitrary thing out of left field. But this is what is. Okay. All right, so with all of that background, we'll get into Revelation 15, 1 to 4. And you get these, these, these visions, instead of thinking of them as one linear line of a seven-year time period or whatever... Think of them as, as cycles, as like overlapping cycles. So you get these cycles of visions. Um, and so we're going to move into a new cycle of visions. Because we had the, the cycle of the seals. And then you get that in between the seals, you get this interlude with the vision into heaven. You get the cycle of trumpets. 
And then in between the trumpets and the bowls, you get this, uh, this kind of interlude with conflict with the beast and all of that going on. And now we're going to get into the next cycle, which is going to be a cycle of, of bowls. But to get into that, before we first get into that, we get an introduction into that with chapter 15, verse 1. And then um, verses 2 to 4, we get this picture of the people of God standing by the sea. So what is this supposed to bring to mind, the people of God standing by the sea? The Red Sea, people of God standing by the Red Sea. And, but what else does the sea symbolize in, in Revelation? Chaos and the source of evil, right? Who came from the sea? The beast came up from the sea. Where else did we see the Where else did we see the sea in in uh, in Revelation four? Is at the foot of the throne, if you remember. There's a sea of glass. Well, here we have the sea, and the people are by the sea. And what's in the sea? Fire, which tends to symbolize judgment. And so there's this sea of chaos, and there's judgment in there, and then there's the people standing there. And if we're following this Exodus idea, then where have the people just arrived from? From the sea, from yeah, well, from slavery to being in, in, enslaved, passing through the sea, standing on the other side. So they've been delivered um, out and through the sea. What would this mean to people in the first century in Asia Minor who are being oppressed by Rome? They, there's joy there, right? Because there's a hope. Because instead of Egypt, who's the oppressor? Rome. And what do you think passing through the sea might mean for a faithful person? You'd probably die. I think we're back. All right. That was exciting. Okay. Um, and so you have the people standing on, on the side of the sea. They've come out of Egypt, passing through testing. Uh, also, what happened when the people of Israel walked through the sea? Who followed them? The Egyptians. Did they make it out the other side? No. <laughs> so in that sense, the water cleansed, didn't it? In that sense, the water cleansed. It, it, the water washed away that which was working towards destruction. So um, the early church fathers, when they were looking over these stories, and they saw stories of people passing through water to the other side to be cleansed of that which was causing their destruction, what do you think they thought of? Baptism. This is another thing where you look at this, this picture of, of baptism. But you see these people passing through and being cleansed and standing in victory on, on the other side. So just uh, so you have this kind of picture of of these oppressive powers of the world that are um, really pressuring the Christians in first century Asia Minor, and here you have this picture for them of faithful people who have made it through to the other side that God has rescued, and so it is a, a vision of hope. They were delivered um, through that. It says. Uh, this was, oh, the ones who had conquered the sea. It was the, those who had conquered. Uh, in verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea. 
What does it mean to conquer in the book of Revelation? Be martyred, remain faithful. Yeah, to be faithful through persecution, which very well could be um, to the point of death. So they had conquered. And they were standing um, and, and, and living faithfully, passed through the sea. And then they come up with the song. And it's called the Song of Moses and the, the Servant of God and the Song of the Lamb. Um, and did you read, so you read Exodus 15, and that's the Song of Moses. And you notice they're kind of different songs, aren't they? This isn't the one that you found in Exodus 15. Exodus 15, you notice, is, is like very excited about God. You beat the crap out of the bad guys, right? And it has that. It's interesting in, um, in Revelation 15. First off, there is, uh, I think, there's great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. So they are praising God for their uh, rescue. Just and true are your ways, King of the Nations. But then it says, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And then who's going to come? All nations will come and worship before you. So we're in Exodus 15. It's the vindication of the people of Israel. And it's one nation. By the time we get to Revelation 15, it's this, all nations will come. And so whereas one is the... but. That was the point of Israel after all, wasn't it? You'll be blessed in order to be a blessing. And then the Messiah comes out of the people of Israel for all the world. The Jewish Messiah is the Messiah to save the world. And so by the time we get to Revelation 15, this is uh, the hope of all nations. And so the song that's the song of the Lamb and of Moses is a song that um, is hoping for deliverance for all people. Then we get into the angels and the plagues. And, uh, and starting with, with verse 5 and verse 6, these angels come out. Um, and they come out of the tent of witness, which uh, brings to mind wilderness travels. There was this tent in the wilderness for God's people. Where are the people, where do we see God's people in the wilderness in the book of Revelation? Who do you suppose felt like they were in the wilderness? People being persecuted. Probably not Laodicea who was doing just fine, right? Or being unfaithful. They were, hey, we can worship Caesar too. And just, um, they not so much. But this wilderness imagery would affect people that if they felt cut off and cut out and threatened and persecuted, this is going to speak to them. So out of the tent of, of witness from the wilderness, um, God's presence is this overwhelming cloud. And it points to the seven plagues. And so you have the angels that are given the seven plagues. How were the angels described in chapter 15? Clean linens with a golden sash. So turn to Revelation 1. I believe it's verse 13. Revelation 1, 13. Somebody read that out loud. Yeah, so you have the similarity, right? So why do you suppose John did that? Since there's seven angels, are there seven Jesuses now? Okay, so there's the priestly image for sure. There's almost this kind of liturgy of them processing out of the tent. And, and it also connects them to Jesus. So these are, these are Jesus' people, 
Jesus' angels. I mean, these are, these are uh, carrying the, the message and, and um, also the judgment from Christ. All right, so they, they come out with uh, the plagues and the bowls. And this plague, when you hear the word plague, it flashes back to Egypt. We've already ha- had them standing by the sea. That was fiery. But now they're given plagues. And so now I think that Egypt story comes back up into our minds. And they're given these seven golden bowls in chapter 15, verse 7. Where have we heard about the bowls before? If you turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Revelation 5, 8 says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp. Who just had harps, by the way? People by the, <clears throat> people by the sea, yep. They had the harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. I want you to picture how this works, because one of the things that happens with the judgment of God is it's, um, it's the kind of logical consequence of the sin. It is just. So the people of God are persecuted. What do they do in their persecution? Who do they talk to about it? God. So they lift up prayers to God. And those prayers in Revelation are pictured as this incense in the bowls. Persecution leads to prayers collected in incense in the bowls. Now the angels take those bowls and what are they going to do? Pour them out. So the people who persecuted the followers of Christ, what are they going to receive? This is the direct result of what they had done. Does that make sense? They persecute people, they lift up prayers, the prayers are collected in the bowls of the incense, then the angels get the incense and they dump it back on them. This is one of the ways, it's just a picture of how the judgment flows and how the judgment works. So they get these bowls, as we found in Revelation 5, 8. <clears throat> and also I think that, that one of the things that happens is, that's important to kind of connect to, is judgment and salvation are two sides of the same act. The prayers of the saints come up, they're gathered in the bowls, and then, and then the punishment comes down. But that, that, that comes down is it's judgment on people, but it's also salvation for the people who are being persecuted. Salvation and judgment in the same act. So then we'll look at the plagues. Um, Craig Coaster writes, Therefore, just as God sent plagues upon Pharaoh and his allies... In order to er, liberate his people from bondage, God's angels send plagues upon the beast and his allies in order to liberate the world from his tyranny. So you see the parallel here. Again, these are people that are under persecution. And they know know the story of, of the people of Israel being rescued from Pharaoh. Well, now they're under a ruler who claims to be God. And now they're going to get uh, this vision of plagues to set them free. And then the, the plagues um, have corresponding plagues in, in the book of Exodus. Well, the first plague is sores. And notice this is an interesting thing. So the, the people who follow the beast receive the mark of the beast. And with the mark of the beast, they can buy and sell. And they're saved from, from any sort of kind of persecution. 
Well, the spiritual reality of that is now they receive not a mark on the skin as far as letting you buy and sell. They get a mark on the skin of a sore of persecution. So the judgment is, is matching um, the situation. Sores is uh, a plague found in Exodus 9, 8 to 11. The second plague is the sea turned to blood. That's Exodus 7, 17 to 25. The third plague has rivers and springs becoming blood, which is again the Exodus 17, or 7, 17 to 25, with the waters turning to blood. Um, and then it has this uh, kind of fascinating thing in here. Heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, O holy one, who are and who were, for you judged these things. Because they shed the blood of the saints and prophets, you've given them blood to drink. So you see how it's connected. The, the, the consequence of their sin is what they receive. You shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. If you want to exist in a world where people are shedding the blood of the innocent, here's blood. It's uh, similar to, um, in, instead of thinking, like, here's blood to drink, I don't think he's, like, making them, like, drink cups of blood. I think this is a, a figurative way of saying, if you want to exist in a situation where innocent blood is spilled, here's blood spilled. Uh, it's, it's similar to, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray and forgive us our sins as what? So we forgive those who sin against us. Which is a challenging thing, isn't it? But if you think about what's going on there, it's we want to live into this reality where forgiveness happens. If we withhold forgiveness from others, then what if God says, okay, you can live in that reality where forgiveness is withheld? So you get this, uh, this connection in judgment. All right. Um, the fourth plague is uh, poured out on the sun, and the sun scorched people with fire. If you notice in Revelation 7, which is a, a picture of the redeemed, in chapter 7, verse 16, it says, The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So oh, there's this, these references back. Um, the fourth plague, is, it's the sun scorches those who worship the beast. And after the fourth plague, we find that the people blaspheme God, just as the beast has blasphemed God in chapter 13. And so they don't repent and give glory to God. Which, by the way, we already had, like if you're here for Sunday, like we know in chapter 11, verse 13, people did turn and give glory to God, and then now they're not giving glory to God. That again points to this isn't a linear thing. These are cycles that go back. And so you get these groups of visions, these just kind of pictures. Um, one of the professors I've listened to said, imagine a, what do you say, a cyclorama? Anyway, imagine, imagine if you're in a room full of uh, um, um, visions or pictures or whatever, and so you turn and you see and you see and you see, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. And so, again, we get these collections of visions. And so there's this not a, a real linear um, element that's going on here. Uh, with the sun, things affecting the sun, in Exodus 9, 23 and 24, we see hail with fire from the sky. So it's kind of like them being scorched by that. And also in ten twenty one to 23, you get a plague that affects the sun, although there it makes it dark. 
which leads us into our fifth plague, which is poured out on the throne of the beast and puts its kingdom into darkness. So the beast's throne is stricken, which affects its ability to rule. And, and again, I think judgment is following the sin. It's, the judgment is um, you're in darkness. This is a kingdom of darkness. This is a natural consequence. It's a kingdom that's in rebellion against God is a kingdom in darkness. Um, you see the plague in Exodus 10, 21 to 23 of turning to dark. And the sixth plague was poured out upon the Euphrates. You remember the Euphrates from before? From the, uh, from the, the trumpets? And that's where the weird locust army people came from. And so if you remember, the Euphrates was this, it was in this collective imagination of both the Hebrew and, and the Roman people of this is where the conquering forces come from. And so if a, a plague is poured out and the Euphrates dries up, it makes way for this conquering army to come in. And so this is, um, this is a threat to being militarily overthrown. Um, and along with that, these frog things come out. And then the frogs gather evil for battle. And the way the evil plays out, uh, or the, the frog, I'm sorry, the frogs and the deceptive tricks are found in Exodus 8, 2 to 14. Yeah, again, this is where it's important to see this as a vision kind of telling us something. Yeah, because you're right, if it's, if it's, the rivers and stuff become blood, then all of a sudden you've got the bloody Euphrates, but it doesn't seem to be dealing with nope, this is something different. So again, these are visions that are giving us pictures of, of the reality of God's judgment and, and how it works. It's telling us something about God. It's telling us something about the people who oppose God. It's telling us something about the people who are faithful to God. And so if you look at your seals, trumpets, and bowls worksheet, is there anyone who didn't get one of these? They were in the back when you came in. Right on that back table there, Alan. Thank you. So I want us to kind of look at these. And now you've got the whole picture of these cycles. And you can see there's some parallels and there's some interesting things going on there. Especially some parallels between the trumpets and bowls. Um, For example, they're, they're grouped into the first four and then the next two and then the seventh tends to be what's going on. Um, in the first set of, of seals, the only fraction we get is the power to kill one-fourth one of the earth. Then in the, the trumpets, what fraction are we working with? One-third. So one-fourth to one-third. Then if you remember, after the trumpets, there was this thing with the seven thunders, which I, I said, I, I tend to think that that was another series of judgments that were just sealed up, which would then, that would be, if it goes one-fourth, one-third, then the next would be one-half, but that would be skipped over as that's been sealed up. So with the bowls, we're dealing with all, it'd be one over one, which would be the entirety, but that's, you don't see one-third of the water becomes like blood. It all becomes like blood. So this um, intensifying is going on. Also, with the trumpets and the bowls, the first one is on the earth. The second one has to do with the sea. The third one has to do with the inland waters. 
And the fourth one has something to do with the sun. And then the fifth one deals with the destroyer in the beast. The sixth one deals with the Euphrates River. And then you get an interlude. I didn't write the interlude in your paper there, but what's the interlude, if you notice, in chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus says, see, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one. Is it in parentheses in your Bible, too? It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like this parenthetical statement that Jesus throws in. That's the interlude. That's the thing in between the sixth and the seventh um, bowl. And then after that, you get the seventh, which is, it is done. Now notice the, the last of each of the series tends to be this um, climactic, like, judgment is coming, or the end of all things, or that sort of thing. So the seventh seal was silence, which we noted the silence before kind of this final judgment. But then we reset back. And then the seventh of the trumpets says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord, and you have begun to reign, which sounds like the end. And then we reset back. And now it says, the voice from the throne says, what? It is done. Meaning the, the judgment or, or whatever, is, it's completed, it's finished. And so again, we go through these cycles, and we tend to like get close to the end and then come back, close to the end, come back. And especially the parallels between the trumpets and bowls, it seems to be... Um, this is a, a different way of describing the same reality or something like that. And then at the seventh of each series, if you, you'll see at the end of it, um, we begin with, there's fire from the altar throne, peals of thunder, rumblings, lightning, and earthquakes. And then with the seventh trumpet, there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunders, earthquakes, and heavy hail gets added on. And then before the seventh bowl, you have... Lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, violent earthquakes. Uh, violent earthquakes like you've never seen before. And then hail weighing 100 pounds. It's like, it's like um, I guess the way I'm picturing this is, each time we get a cycle of these, it's like you turn up the volume a little louder. A little louder, a little louder. Well, well, why would the vision do that? If the purpose of the vision isn't to tell the future, what do you suppose the purpose of the vision might be? Get you to repent. So if you're straying from God, it's to get you to come to, to Christ. If you're faithful and you're under persecution, what's it supposed to do? Give you hope. So it's either supposed to get you to repent and come back or give you hope to go forward. So each time you see this, it gets a little louder, a little louder, a little louder, because it's getting your attention, drawing you in, getting your eyes to focus on, on the Lamb of God. Yeah. <laughs> She says, is it like asking our kids to do something? You ask them, and then it gets louder and louder and louder. I don't know. My kids do things the first time I ask them every time. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Don't make me count to three or four. <laughs> Please just do it. I don't want to get up. Um. Yeah, so we've got this. Uh, this the, the way that cycle works is fascinating. It's really fascinating. The other thing is... Um, after the sixth seal, the question was, who was able to stand? 
And then the interlude dealt with that. Um, the, the righteous before God were able to stand. After the sixth trumpet, you have the problem was they didn't repent. And then the interlude dealt with that, with the faithful witnesses, and then the people repent. At the end of the sixth bowl, you get this demonic army that's mounting up, ready to attack. And Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And so you get kind of the things addressed at each one. And you're going to see when we get into the next couple chapters that um, you're going to see how this battle or this conflict plays out. As you look over that, any questions? Yes. Sixteen seven. Yeah, and I heard. You know what? I can't. <laughs> yeah, I heard the altar respond. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if that has to do with the people that are um, the faithful that were under the altar or, yeah, how that works. I guess heaven is really interactive. I guess another thing that's interesting is, um, just to kind of go off the top of my head, the altar being a place of, of sacrifice and the place where God's people are made right with God. Um, I think also this this idea of even these kind of inanimate yet important objects praising God, I think kind of goes back to just point to who God is. It just makes me think of, you know, when Jesus said, if they stop praising me, what will happen? Even the rocks will cry out. And I think that just points back to God being creator God. And if God is a creator God, then everything else finds its existence in him. And so um, it's just maybe another sign of kind of this right relationship, um, which goes back to the whole stuff with Exodus and all of that stuff we just went through. Is this, um, I mean, it's worth, the con- it's worth contemplating to think of what it means for God to be our creator, uh, what that implies and, and how that impacts our lives and how we should live and how we find our, our meaning and all that stuff. Worship, then, is at the heart of this. Um, the people who worship the beast, and the beast in, in chapter 13, verse 6, it says, it, opens, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in, in heaven. So the beast blasphemes against God three times. Well, the people who follow the beast, what do they do? They curse God. They, they partake in the beast's blasphemy. It said in 16, verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God. 16, 11, they cursed the God of heaven. And in 16, 21, they cursed God for the plague of the hail. And so... Um, Worship is at the heart. You worship the beast, and you're, one of the commentaries said you're either, it's think of how you use your mouth. You're either using your mouth to join in the heavenly chorus of praise, 
or you're using your mouth to join in with the beasts and cursing. And one of the important things about the book of Revelation is, so you've got people, again, who, and it's hard to blame them. They're, they're being pressured and persecuted. And if they'll just follow these idols, if they'll just compromise to the society around them, then they can kind of be okay. And so some of them are compromising. Well, I guess I can, I can play it in the middle. And the book of Revelation is saying, actually, no. You're either praising God or you're with the beast blaspheming God. There's no third option. And so for those people that are trying to walk down the middle and they think it's okay if I offer incense to the Caesar every once in a while, they read this book and this visions uh, ought to probably bother them a little bit. Because uh, John, through these visions, is, is very clear. It's you're worshiping the lamb or you're worshiping the beast. You're sealed by the lamb or you're sealed by the beast. Um, and, and so that's, that goes into that. Blasphemy, by the way, and I want to bring this up again, is, is a perspective that rejects God as having any relevant role in your life. Okay, so they're blaspheming against God, saying that God isn't that God. Isn't God. My, my being isn't found in relationship with God. That's blasphemy against God against who God is. And when you do that, you put up a wall that creates this inability to receive the love of God. Um. Dr. Mahon writes, Repentance emerges out of a recognition of one's complicity in the root cause of the problem. Repentance flows from you recognizing that, that you're at the root of your own problem. Which, by the way, this is why the 12-step programs are brilliant. Because what's the first step of a 12-step program? I have a problem. And it is me. I cannot manage my life. Hey, if you know anybody in a 12-step program, absolutely and utterly encourage them. Because in a lot of ways, they're healthier than a lot of other people that are pretending. Because you have to begin the first step. You can't go to step two before you do step one. I have a problem and it's me. Step two is there is a God. Step three is that God will help me. Almost sounds like the gospel. And so repentance comes out of this recognition that I am complicit in the root cause of the problem. And so that means that lacking repentance leads to a blind spot to our own issues. When we lack, when we lack repentance, instead of owning up to our own brokenness, where does the blame for brokenness lie? And if we deny it's with us, who do we look to? Anybody, right? Let me find someone to blame. And uh, (laughs) Dr. Mulholland writes, the world can be imploding all around you, everything falling apart, like huge hailstones falling on you, and you still look to blame the other person. Have you ever experienced this in your own life, and and maybe you have someone you love? I mean, that's that's actually why the 12-step program was developed, is because part of the behavior for us when we're addicted is... We continually blame those around us, and we tend to blame people who are closest to us and, and make them responsible for our own downfall. And healing can't happen until I say, you know what, I've made a mistake. My life is out of control. It's not everybody else's fault. It's my fault. But the reason I like the 12-step program so much is because sin is our addiction, all of us. 
sin is our addiction. And until we admit, my life is out of control, I cannot manage life on life's terms, I am too broken, I need help. And until each and every one of us do, I mean, that is repentance that all of us have to do. Whether you go to a meeting that has bad coffee and cigarettes or not, that's a move that all of us have to do. And then say, I believe there's a God and that God will help me. Otherwise, we tend to do the same thing. We're blinded by our own sin. Our world's falling apart around us. Maybe we gossip a lot and we gossip and gossip and gossip. And what happens if people know you gossip? What do they start to tell you? Nothing. Because why? They don't want everyone else to know it. And so now I don't know why I can't have any close friends. And then what? Well, it's everybody else's fault. This church is so stuck up. Unbelievable. They're too clicky. Everybody's related to everybody else except for me. Like, well, that may be the case. However, at some point, we need to admit the sin in our own lives before any healing can happen. Uh, Another thing that happens here is, uh, just like I said, there's no gray area in this worship. You worship the lamb or the beast. The third thing is that, um, notice that the people chose evil in this situation. Why did the people follow the beast? What, what was one reason people would follow the beast? They could do what they wanted to. Well, you remember back with the beast, it said, um, remember when they were, uh, the beast, they, they, thought they, had the, they thought the head died, but then it came back to life, and they said, who is like the beast? So they, there was this fear, right? Who can defeat this thing? And so if I want to stay safe, what do I do? Worship the beast. If I want to buy and sell stuff, what do I do? Worship the beast. So if I want to stay safe, I worship the beast. And then these plagues come. Now it seems like that same logic would say, okay, well, I thought the beast was big and bad, but oh my goodness. But did they turn to God? It just revealed what was really going on. If they were just going because of fear towards the beast, if it was just fear, then the fear of God would be greater and maybe they'd turn to God. But that's not the case. When the judgment and persecution came, they didn't turn to God. Their hearts were just hardened. Not because God isn't willing, but because they were not. A a wonderful book on this sort of thing is called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Sometime I'll do a book study on it. It's just a, a brilliant book. And one of the things he says in that is the gates of hell are locked from the inside. All right, then we get into the seventh bowl. The seventh bowl is poured into the air. There was a common perception that the air had um, spirits and the demonic in it, which is why, if you remember, if, you've, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul calls Satan the ruler of the power of the air. And so this bowl being poured into the air is a judgment upon the demonic. And so you note the last three bowls, the The fifth bowl is poured on the beast's throne, which is the political power. The sixth bowl is poured on the Euphrates, which allows for the military conquering power. The seventh bowl is poured into the air, which is the image of the demonic realm. So there's this complete judgment, complete infiltration of the holiness of God. God completely pours out his holiness and his judgment on the whole whole nine yards of it. So it's not a surprise that the the voice says, it is done, it is finished. The end of the empire and its tyranny against God's people has now come. 
Um, the last thing I'll get into before we do questions, I know this is a little bit quick tonight, um, is uh, the Battle of Armageddon. So how many of you have heard of the Battle of Armageddon before you came to class? Is that, that's like one of those things, right? It's like the Mark of the Beast and the Battle of Armageddon. And the Battle of Armageddon is supposed to be this, um, some worldly bat- World War III or whatever. And um, there's very few verses in here for all that you've seen written about it or heard about it, which is interesting, which should raise a red flag, by the way, right? If there's like two verses here about Armageddon, and books written about it, you might think, huh, somebody's adding something somewhere, right? Um, so this battle of Armageddon, Armageddon, it's, it's uh, took the, the Hebrew word for Armageddo and transliterated in, into Greek and get Armageddon, but Armageddo means the mountain of Megiddo, which is a problem because Megiddo is a plain, and so there's not a specific mountain there. But why was Megiddo used? Um, in Scripture, Megiddo is, the, in the Old Testament, it's the place of uh, some significant things. So um, Deborah leads Israel over Sihon in Judges 4 to 5. You remember the Deborah story? Do you remember how that ends? How Sisera, how Sisera die? Yeah, he, <laughs> he had a splitting headache. Yeah, he... JL um, came and ten- pegged him into the ground. There's awesome stories in the Old Testament. You just got to read more of it. Um, the next one is Ahaziah the, is the apostate king. Um, Elisha comes and anoints Jehu, and Jehu kills him on Megiddo. That's uh, 2 Kings 9. King Josiah um, tries to stop Pharaoh Necho from advancing on one of Josiah's allies, and he dies on, in Megiddo on uh, 2 Kings 23. And so uh, the place of Megiddo, in the Jewish imagination and understanding of things, the pool of images that they're drawing from, is a place that denotes a decisive conflict between God and his en- enemies. Um, so I think this image is simply pointing to a deeper reality, the image of that final and decisive victory of God over the forces of the rebellious order. So this is, just, this is pointing towards um, some final judgment that is coming. This is a, a vision, in, which makes sense, because the thing leading up to Megiddo is the armies gathering from the frogs. It gathers, but the, it, it's again, I think it's symbolic of this final judgment and, and this, uh, this final defeat of evil. Um, and so instead of, instead of thinking of, I think the armies are just supposed to, to picture this gathering of evil and, and, and rebellion against God. Um, and we see how that plays out in the next few chapters. But rather than thinking of, I think these are, these are pictures. These visions are pictures to get us to see something. We have to keep going back to what would this mean to the first, person who, first people who read it? Well, the first people who heard this, they're concerned that Rome is so mighty and powerful and the bad guys are so strong, they're never going to get out from under them. 
And this vision is saying, no, the, there's de- first off, there's demonic forces behind that. And that the Almighty God is victorious over those demonic forces. Meanwhile, your job is to be faithful and conquer, which may mean death. However, that's why you get the vision of the victorious people by the sea, or the vision of those praising God in Revelation 7. All right, any questions about these? They're all perfectly clear. Yes? You know, I haven't done a lot of, because that would be into when, by the time the Vandals sacked Rome, um, Constantine had already been emperor, and, and Christianity was the state religion. And so that changes things a bit. So instead of being a persecuted minority, now they're kind of in charge, and now the Vandals are the, they'd be like the threat from the east coming in. So I don't know. I, I'd have to look at... Um, Oh, interpretations of Revelation through then, which I don't have access to a lot of, to kind of know. Um, yeah. I, I think one thing, though, is I, I think you would see Constantine becoming emperor and allowing Christianity and removing persecution. I think you would see that as the overthrow of the beast, whether or not the Roman structure stays in place. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, so there was the earthquake and then the great city was split into thirds. One of the, um, one of the things I read about that was it may have been playing in people's imagination because when Nero, when Nero killed himself, um, there was rebellion within Rome. And the fact there were three factions to that rebellion, they had to fight it out, and that was the year of was the year of four emperors or whatever. So there was all this upheaval in in the empire, and so it looks like it might fall, and so it was kind of split into thirds. But then it came back. But again, I think theologically, what's happening then is this vision is saying, when that sort of stuff happens, there's a my phone, there's a spiritual reality behind that that this is part of God's judgment on things. And one of the things, too, in judgment, the way it works is within evil itself, there's a kernel of its own destruction. Um, what I mean is, th- is this. The people who led Rome... I mean, Nero was a bloodthirsty maniac. And so he persecuted Christians horribly. But it turns out, if you're going to follow a bloodthirsty maniac, bad stuff happens to everybody. And so um, when they went to get rid of him and he kills himself and then it just all falls apart. Evil contains within itself a seed of its own destruction because evil doesn't create anything. It only steals, kills, and destroys, twists and warps and that sort of thing. So anyway, that was a longer answer to a shorter question. Anything else? Wonderful. Let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer and if you have any questions, I'll be here. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for your grace, and I hope that as we consider your, um, your wrath and your judgment and your justice, I hope that we're all aware that uh, if you said to any one of us, um, fine, thy will be done, uh, we would be in trouble. 
And it's only by your grace that we are held together. And I pray, Lord, that we would live in that reality, that it's in you that we live and move and have our being, um, that it's the, the cross of Christ and your love through him that defines who we are, and that in him we can be reconciled to you and um, have that image of God in us uh, being restored by the Holy Spirit. So I pray, Lord, that uh, as we read through the scriptures, it would turn us to you that it would just turn our hearts to you more and more. And it would also help us to see the world as uh, full of people that you love, um, that you desire uh, for them to repent. pray that you would take care of us now, go with us our separate ways, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much.